Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Welcome, everyone. We are fortunate to have with us Robert Zellick to share his thoughts on some of the challenges that we face today. Let me say that our speaker's deep understanding of the challenges we must deal with today is enriched by his incredible experience that few have in both the public and the private sectors as a lawyer, diplomat, businessman, professor, author, and public servant. He has served as Deputy Secretary of State, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Deputy Chief of, of Staff to our President, U.S. Trade Representative, and President of the World Bank. As U.S. Trade Representative, he completed pre-trade agreements with 11 governments and worked with Congress on both sides of the aisle. He's currently non-executive chair of the Alliance Bernstein, a leading global investment management firm and senior fellow at the Belfer Center, Harvard University. He's written extensively about foreign policy and international economics. In addition to his numerous thoughtful articles, including a wonderful editorial posted late yesterday by the Wall Street Journal, and uh, you all have to read that. He has published three books and has a forthcoming out this summer entitled American in the World, A History of Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. I can tell you, I am anxious to read it. In recognition of his many contributions, he's received a long list of awards and, uh, and uh, honorifics from our government and from governments beyond our borders. Many of you will recall that in 2005, he was our honoree at our gala, and he urged China, when he gave his remarks, to become not just a member of the international system, but to become, and I use his words, a responsible stakeholder in that system. Fifteen years after those remarks, we have grave concern about both our bilateral relationship and the future of our international system that has contributed enormously to our peace and prosperity over the past 70 years. Bob, thank you so much for agreeing to speak at our 54th annual members meeting. We very much look forward to your remarks. Well, thank you very much, Carla, and thanks to Steve and, and Margot and to all of the members of your group, uh, a hearty band under challenging times, I'm sure. These are not sunny days for the community interested in US-China relations. In fact, it's a little bit more like uh, a freeze of a new Cold War. So I thought to get us off on a different foot, I might start with a story. A few years ago, uh, I took my late mother to visit a counselor because she was feeling rather blue. And after a good long chat, the counselor said, uh, Mrs. Zellick, you need to learn to embrace your mistakes. <clears throat> so my mom turned to me, gave me a big smile, then gave me a very big hug. 
So embrace your mistakes. I guess that's the, the current mantra in the U.S. commentary today about U.S.-China relations. But today I'd like to offer a different and perhaps contrarian assessment. So I'm going to make five observations, concluding with some suggestions that I hope uh, will be constructive. First, uh, when President Xi assumed office in 2012, he prepared a documentary film about the end of the Soviet Union, and he directed all the party cadres to watch the film, all 86.68 million of them at that time. Now, if that film had been developed in Europe, the story would have been about Gorbachev who helped end the Cold War. Well, the Chinese version is a little different. In the Chinese version, Gorbachev is the fool who abandoned the Communist Party, destroyed his country, left everything in ruin, and the not-so-subtle message is, it won't happen here. The fall of the Soviet Union still casts a long shadow over Beijing. And indeed, I believe if President Xi had been unable to uh, control COVID-19, it would have posed a threat to the party legitimacy. As many of you as students of China know, disease, famine, natural disasters often foretold the end of dynasties. In contrast, I think at this moment, Xi feels that China has had relative success, but he's still somewhat in a defensive posture. Second point, I would describe China's approach to the world today as globalization with Chinese characteristics. And it follows two tracks. The first track actually builds off the speech I gave uh, to this group some 15 years ago, and that as part of the existing international institution structure, the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, the WHO, the UN agencies, China is starting or has tried to push those towards Chinese interests and norms. Now, this really shouldn't be a surprise. All countries tend to do so. The bigger surprise is that the U.S. has actually failed to do this within these institutions and is now starting to recognize the cost of, of, uh, of that abandonment. But there is a second track, and it follows in the Chinese tradition of tributary states. Here, the idea is that China will provide benefits to others as long as they show respect, and definitely no criticism of the Chinese Communist Party. The Belt and Road is a good example of this. It's a model of infrastructure-led development that China has used elsewhere. It's taking the similar approach with information and data sources uh, under state control. I believe at this point the G will recognize he needs to moderate some of the propaganda overreach and the heavy-handed response to international critics. Chinese historians will recognize that past spasms of patriotic or party fervor, for example, in the Boxer Rebellion or in the Cultural Revolution, scared the world as opposed to persuading the world. So we'll see how Xi handles this in the upcoming Congresses that we'll see over the next couple of days. I think we already got a little flavor of it uh, in the WHO assembly meeting for how he'll be positioned. Third point, U.S. politics in China. Well, President Trump switched to a policy of confrontation, but his focus was primarily on the bilateral trade deficit. And after some three years of tariffs and arguments, he produced a purchase package that was always questionable, and now I believe is a fantasy. 
Uh, Chad Bone of the Peterson Institute just produced a paper either this week or late last week that shows the numbers so far, and they're not even at the halfway level of what they would need. And of course, that doesn't include the categories that are not part of purchases that actually lead to substantial declines. However, Trump is going to need to shift blame in an election year. So we can expect a lot of attacks and blame on China, which we've already seen. He may have to have some restraint because he still wants an economic recovery and a big clash with China will unnerve markets. Other Republicans, however, have expanded the chorus quite considerably. They focused on issues such as human rights, which Trump doesn't focus on, Hong Kong, internal affairs, Taiwan, security in the South China Sea, other economic conditions, the Wuhan virus. The objectives of the complaints are not really clear to me. I don't believe one can contain China. I don't think anyone thinks you could get support for that. Is it to decouple? Well, for what purpose and what end? At the same time, I don't think the Democratic Party can be seen as being soft on China. On trade issues, as Carlo knows well, they tended to be more protectionists anyway in the first place, although Republicans are now giving them a race for their money on that. I would expect the Democratic policy to be more multilateral in nature, but still somewhat fuzzy. And the bottom line is, I think we have to expect the rhetoric to worsen in the course of this campaign. I keep hoping that uh, when next year turns around, there'll still be some fluidity because I believe that reality will intrude. That brings me to the fourth point. The new conventional wisdom in the US uh, is that cooperation with China failed. And I take a contrarian view on that. I wrote an article in the National Interest in March and April that outlines this in some detail, but let me give you the highlights. Keep in mind, China used to be a wartime enemy and then supporter of proxy enemies in North Korea and, and uh, in Vietnam. And it moved from that to trying to help the United States on issues such as proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and missiles, where it used to be sort of the number one proliferator. As part of that, it cooperated with the United States on Iran and North Korea with nuclear programs. From 2000 to 2018, prodded by U.S. diplomacy, China supported U.N. sanctions and 182 of 190 resolutions. It's the biggest other contributor to U.N. peacekeeping. Uh, when I worked on issues such as Darfur, China was actually quite supportive in our efforts uh, with the Sudanese government. On the economic side, China has been the largest contributor to global economic growth. Its current account surplus went from 10% to zero, so that adds demand to the international economy. It no longer manipulates its exchange rate. It was the fastest growing destination for U.S. exports for 15 years until Trump. In the global financial crisis, it had the largest fascist stimulus. It worked very effectively with uh, Paulson and Geithner and uh, me at the World Bank and the IMF. Even in the area of the WTO, the much maligned WTO, China's commitments, of course, ran much deeper than other developing economies such as Brazil uh, and India. Uh, and by and large, it kept its numerical obligation. The weaker problems were on areas which are harder to measure, such as IPR enforcement. Even here, you started to see under prodding, China has created a whole series of IPR courts. Foreigners have won most of those cases. The penalties, I think, are still not high enough. But the point is, there's been a lot of benefits 
from the U.S. cooperation and work with China. In the area of climate change, uh, China knows the criticality of this issue, even though it's now the largest emitter. If the, if the glaciers in the Himalayas melt, it will be an economic or a ecosystem disaster throughout China. Uh, it now is one of the leaders in non-fossil fuel technologies. In areas of animal conservation, an area topic I have an interest, people were very pleased when China accepted the elephant ivory ban. Uh, it did something similar by the netizen community with shark fin soup, although it has had a problem with permitting illegal wildlife trafficking as we are seeing now in terms of some of the effect on the coronavirus. And I think Chinese policies could change. Even on the very sensitive issue of Taiwan, if one goes back and looks at the exchanges that Nixon and Kissinger had with the Chinese 50 years ago, I think one might be surprised that Taiwan today is a democracy able to operate pretty autonomously in the international system, but obviously not as an independent state. Now, this is dependent not only on Chinese policy, but also on U.S. policy. But my point with all these items, and frankly, there are others, is not that all is well. It's that we shouldn't take the benefits for granted. Um, and we need to recognize that those who argue that cooperation has failed are flat wrong, and they're misleading themselves and the U.S. public. In effect, there's no holidays from the work of diplomacy. So finally, um, I want to close with some, some suggestions for a different approach. And I would recommend three parts. First, the United States needs to identify the priority elements of its global agenda. Mine would be a combination of today's realities plus traditional interests. So just to give you a quick list, I would have biological security, including biotechnology, as a very cold and practical measure, U.S. deaths from COVID-19 are now about almost the same total of the fatalities we had in Vietnam and Korea. So it gives you a sense of the costs of getting this wrong. Another item would be an inclusive economic recovery with opportunity and appropriate security, environment and energy security, digital security and innovation, dealing with proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, to hostile regional hegemons, the combination of terror, public order, law enforcement, the future of freedom, and of course, the future of China. Now, my second part would be to work with allies to agree on such an agenda or approaches based on such an agenda. Now, clearly, China policy is critical for partners in the Indo-Pacific region, but I think one of the key dimensions often overlooked is the European role. Europe has enjoyed China's benefits, but it's also seen the, the snapping of sharp teeth. Um, I expect that most Europeans don't want to become tributary states, but they might accommodate a benign neutralism. Henry Kissinger, who I know has been active uh, with this group over the years, has made this point when he's probed about whether Europe might become a strategic appendage, as he says, of Eurasia. So Europe could tip the balance, and it's very much in the United States' interest in dealing with China to try to discuss the fuller agenda that I mentioned and see how we also would deal with China in that context. The third and last part, my effort to try to find mutual ground with China does not mean the United States should retreat from its fundamental values. 
In fact, contrary to Trump, who has been very quiet on these, I think this should always be part of U.S. policy, even as we seek to cooperate with China. Ronald Reagan spoke out on the principles of the United States, even as he negotiated and sought cooperation with the Soviet Union. Now, the starting point, of course, is the example we set at home. Then it's the support we give to other friends of freedom. And a critical element with China is that the United States should always emphasize human aspirations, not name calling. I still believe there's a debate among the public in China about the future, including some of the mistakes and the, the problems of the Chinese Communist Party. So we want to appeal to the Chinese public, not insult them. I wouldn't use freedoms as a club, but I'd use them as the beacon. So I want to thank all of you as part of this group for your ongoing commitment and interest in Sino-American ties. They are going to be absolutely fundamental for both countries and the world uh, in the years ahead. And 2021 could turn out to be a year of key choices. My last thought is there's a lot of frustrations the United States might have with China or with other countries in the world. From my experience, it's always important to keep your eye on what you want to achieve. What about the results that you want? What can you get done? Not just an expression of your frustrations. And I think our policy over the past few years has emphasized frustrations with very little on what it has accomplished. Thank you. Bob, thank you so much. That was just so thoughtful. I still remember, you know, that in 2005, when you came to, to our gala and gave the responsible stakeholder speech, um, I remember, you know, that year, you were the featured speaker. We had uh, Dow Jones, we had Lenovo, we had uh, Fred Smith from FedEx and John Thornton as the honorees. And, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a very pro-constructive engagement crowd, I would call it. And I remember as I sat and listened to the speech, I said, wow, this is a pretty tough speech. <laughs> never realizing that 15 years later, it's viewed as a soft speech. <laughs> that, that the, the um, you know, the, the, the politics have changed so much. So kind of my first question, first I'll ask a bunch of questions and then I've got already a dozen audience questions. Um, would you give it again? What would you change in it? You know, speeches always have to reflect the context of the time. I don't have, as my comments today suggested, I don't have a shift in the fundamentals, but let me explain why. It, in 2005, what I was seeking to do was to identify the next direction for U.S. policy. Uh, Carla and others had been part of a policy, and, and I was also helpful in that and supportive for 20 years of trying to integrate China into the international system. And what I and my colleagues were reflecting in 2005 was that that had been achieved. China had come into the WTO as part of the IMF, World Bank, Montreal Protocol, UN Security Council, group after group. So in effect, what probably your recollection of your comments uh, sort of recalls is that I was suggesting we needed to move beyond forms to norms not just structure, but to behavior. And so um, I was suggesting that China needed to do more than take part, but it had to assume the responsibilities of the system. 
Um, now, some of the later critics, uh, I think, are kind of off for a couple of reasons. One, you know, uh, I was then, and to a degree I am still now, a diplomat. And so part of my point was, how can I get the Chinese to do what I would like to have in my own country's interests? Um, and I never could quite understand people that would disagree with China being supportive on sort of the U.S. interests agenda if the price is to treat China with some respect. I think some of them oppose the idea of according China respect. And of course, as part of this mechanism, you would have to listen and discuss with China. I found that to be part of diplomacy with, with all countries. And I actually feel that over the course of years uh, with China, as I touched on, it could be uh, quite productive in the process. I made some of the point, same points then that I did today about the United States should stand up for its positions on freedom. I went back and looked at that speech since it's often been described. And, and I also talked about how U.S. would have a hard time maintaining its systemic leadership unless China assumed some of the same responsibilities. And even today, when I see some of the criticism, it's quite interesting. What people come back to is they say they want China to assume more responsibility on pandemic. They want China to assume more responsibility on climate change or you pick the topic. Well, how is that different from, from uh, what I was trying to say along the process? And it, I put in a line in here, which I want to underscore, which is, you know, the work of diplomacy is never done in this process. You can't just sort of rest on it. I wasn't saying China was a responsible stakeholder. I was trying to encourage China to be a responsible stakeholder. And two last sort of elements of that. You may have encountered this, Steve or, or Carla. Um, I had a lot of discussion with the Chinese after that speech. And you know, one of the amusing parts, of course, there was a Wall Street Journal article about the translation of the term stakeholder. They had and great so difficulty I, with it. <laughs> I didn't design it this way, but of course, any, any speechwriter loves the idea that people will debate your terms because then it leads to a discussion about it. Um, people like Evan Feigenbaum, who've been very involved with this, recognize that the Chinese actually had definitions for it, but they wanted to understand the meaning. And I actually, years later, ran into one of the members of the Chinese embassy staff who was at your dinner and told me that he stayed up till 3 or 4 a.m. writing a cable, sort of taking the interpretation of it. And, of course, I think uh, from a diplomatic point of view, it, it, it worked in the sense that China uh, didn't see it as a negative or an insult, as some people in the audience were afraid. They saw it as... Uh, a respect and recognition, but also a call for China to do more. Yeah. And frankly, whether it was Afghanistan, in the, in the time that followed, Afghanistan uh, policies with Iran and others, um, it bore fruit. And let me just give you a sort of a point to give you an example of the currency of that today. Because I went on to work with China on a lot of economic development issues at the World Bank, uh, they invited me to their development forum, including for their 40th anniversary. And um, in my remarks there, I obviously uh, complimented China's achievements, but I was also continuing in the spirit of the 2005 speech to prod them. And one topic I mentioned was Belt and Road. And I said, look, no one knows what Belt and Road is about. Is it a geopolitical move? Is it a development venture? Is it uh, to use excess capacity? And I suggest it's probably all those things. 
But then I went on to say, compare the reception of Belt and Road with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, where some people were critical. I was not from the start. I said it depended on the governance, it depended on the procurement rules, it depended on the environmental standard. And as you know, Jane LeQuinn, the head of the AAIB, hired a number of my former colleagues from the World Bank, and they have very, very good standards. But I've mentioned to the Chinese then, why don't you apply the same approach to Belt and Road? Procurement, good governance, deal with anti-corruption, environmental issues. And <clears throat> on that same trip, uh, more than one very senior Chinese official said to me, look, we're giving your speech to President Xi. We want to see if we can push these ideas. And the next year at the Belt and Road Forum, President Xi basically adopted that agenda. Now, that isn't enough. The question, if as part of diplomacy, the U.S. should be working with Europe, Japan, Australia, and others, companies, to follow through, to make sure that the words get exercised in, in, in practice. But there was one other dimension of that, which I said, look, um, the loans that you're making to a lot of developing countries are going to be building up the debt. And you in Beijing are not fools. At some point, you know there's going to be a problem. These chickens are going to come home to roost. And frankly, you'd be a lot better off if you were transparent on the debt as opposed to opaque. Because when it blows up, everybody's going to be knocking on your door. Well, that's one that they didn't operate on so quickly. And now they learn the lessons of having to do that. So I, I mention these as examples that even some 15 years later, the same logic holds. I mean, we will see if your questions want to get to this. If I were dealing with changes in the WHO, cleaning up the pandemic, other topics, this would be a logical way to proceed. Now, at the same time, I'm not suggesting that the United States in security terms shouldn't also have a deterrence agenda. Um, there's some been some good books. Chris Brose just wrote one about how I personally think the military technology will need to change so we don't have a series of exposed vulnerable platforms and we need a different sort of network types of system. And interestingly enough, it's a different strategy. It's not an offensive strategy. It's more of a defense and deterrence strategy. So <clears throat> I think um, if, and there'll be points if the Chinese exercise certain behavior or steal certain property, you should smack them back. So it's a combination of deterrence, uh, penalties were appropriate, but also trying to find mutual uh, common interest. And I keep coming back to this problem when I see kind of the administration and kind of the new range of cold warriors or whatever we want to call them. And I ask them, okay, what do you want to get done? I mean, so if, you, if you're trying to deal with South China Sea security or pandemic or environment or data issues, explain to me how your process is going to accomplish something. So that's why I keep coming back to that. And, you know, I had the good fortune of working with, with uh, Secretary Baker for eight or nine years. And it's just part of our DNA that you, you don't just BS about something. You're there to get something done. In the speech, and then we'll go on to more current questions, you quote our old friend Zheng Bijian, who had this wonderful um, phrase. He said, you know, he was talking about China, to transcend the traditional ways for great powers to emerge. To transcend the traditional ways for great powers to emerge. Has China done it? Well, clearly not. Um, and and I think, you know, going back to your 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 prior question, the 
some of the criticism or reshaping of U.S. policy is now put under the label of so great powers. H.R. Uh, McMaster has written a piece on this and others. Um, and uh, I'd be the last person to deny the role of powers in the international system. I spent my career doing with that with the U.S. But uh, it's not solely uh, a world of nation state powers. Take the pandemic. You know, whose nation state power is that? But we're about ready to have more deaths than we had from Vietnam and Korea. Take climate change as an issue. Take the international trading system. So the challenge, of course, is for great powers to try to develop a system that works in their interest as well as in the global interest so you bring more parties as part of it. And so I think one of the unfortunate aspects of the U.S. policy is that we're probably driving China away from a system, as I suggested. And that doesn't mean it's going to go home and surrender. It's going to develop an alternative system. And I think we'd be better off starting continuing to try to work with it with norms of the system that served U.S. interests. But right now, you know, if you're a U.S. diplomat, what what ground do you have to stand on? I mean, you're, you're undermining the system yourself. I mean, take the WTO. We block the appointments to the appellate body. So the EU and a number of other countries have gone off and sort of created a surrogate. You're going to see more and more of that. And Kevin Rudd wrote a piece I know recently where he mentioned that the two great powers, China and the United States, might come out of this uh, sort of pandemic in a weak and worse position. Um, so I'm certainly not denying the role of powers and, and ones that need to assume larger responsibilities, but they need to act in a systemic fashion. And another related piece of that is part of the U.S. great power strategy for 70 years is to develop allies and partners. And I don't think we're doing a very good job of that. No question. Why do you think, I mean, you mentioned in, in both your national interest piece and in your remarks today, the drop of China's uh, current account surplus to GDP ratio from 10 back when you were at, at Treasury and at State to uh, and USTR to now zero, functionally zero. Why has that just disappeared from the radar? And people talk about bilateral trade deficits, which really don't make much difference. What's gone on in kind of the, the political world that it's this faux metric who we elect as president does matter. <laughs> and Trump is focused on the bilateral trade deficit, so that's gonna be a big drive. Second, bilateral or trade deficits, Carlo knows this well, have always been hard to explain to people. You know, I, I try to come up with various examples. I point out that we have a surplus with Australia, Australia is a surplus with China, China is a surplus with the US, what did we learn? I think Carla and I have both used the supermarket one. You know, I, I have a deficit with my supermarket, but I don't stop shelves at night, particularly now with the coronavirus, to get an offsetting point. But it's not an easy point for people to understand. But I think there's a, there's a point going beyond that, Steve. And that is, and it's certainly the National Committee has encountered this. I think over the past five or 10 years, uh, the U.S. business community's frustrations in China have mounted. And during Carla's tenure and my tenure, the U.S. business community was an important uh, sort of pillar of wanting to work with China. And I think those frustrations developed in part because of Chinese behavior, 
um, and forced technology transfer, some of the IPR issues, lack of reciprocity, particularly as China grew and became more significant. And so you lost the voice of support at the same time that the, the legitimate criticisms that that community raised. You would have a better sense about whether um, there's now some concern among U.S. businesses of overshooting. I get sort of mixed messages. I mean, some of them, you know, if, if you really look at some of the major auto companies and others, they're making good money in, in China. Uh, you can see uh, J.P. Morgan, BlackRock expanding in terms of asset management. Um, and so I think uh, on the one hand, um, you know, there were legitimate concerns, but then as the politics shifted, a lot of the executives became fearful of, of saying anything good about China. And particularly under President Trump's regime, they would be afraid that they'll be attacked for doing that. It's one reason why I've tried to prod the discussion in some of the ways I have, even the piece I wrote in today's journal, which is to sort of prompt people to say, okay, I understand the Communist Party of China. I understand the things we don't like. So what do you want to get done? And kind of how do you best think that we can accomplish that? to try to encourage some of the other participants in the U.S. system, including the business community, to be more participating in explaining that we've got to find our way through this with some, some mutuality. Um, and you would have a better sense of whether people are willing to reach that point. Um, we're, we're at, a, as I said, politically, um, we're at a more dangerous stage now because across the spectrum, everybody wants to look, quote, tough on China. I mean, and Again, you know, at the heart of it, you have to ask, what is in your own country's interest? So, you know, there's wacky proposals out there that we're not supposed to pay our debt to China. Well, how's that going to help the United States at times we got trillion dollar deficits? Yeah. Um, Dan Rosen asks, you know, one of our directors who founder of the Rhodium Group asks, which Trump era China-focused regulatory moves would you roll back? Firma, ECRA, some others? And they're trying to bring it down from kind of the macro down to the micro. Are there things that they've done, or is it just a lot of uh, noise? Well, in the national interest piece, I, I tried to identify areas that I think we needed to have improvement of. And, and there's a category that I loosely called reciprocity. So that would be ability to invest, lower tariffs, intellectual property rights protection, forced technology transfer. Um, I think there are a number of things in, in that area. Um, the, the question is whether you're going to accomplish those by raising tariffs or trying to do purchase agreements. Then secondly, um, the state-owned enterprises and state capitalism. That, of course, gets into trade policy through subsidies, but it's a broader issue about whether it's fairness. Although, as probably most of the people on this call understand, those enterprises are not producing so well for China. The work from the Peterson Institute shows that actually their return on assets are less. Third, the Belt and Road, which I mentioned. Fourth, uh, the area of controlling the future technologies. Fifth, foreign and security policy. And sixth, the issue of sort of values and freedom. Now, you can come up with your own list if you would like, whatever you want. Uh, but I don't think that raising tariffs are going to be successful in trying to address those issues very effectively. And I, I would use a combination of policies uh, that sometimes would include both carrots and, and, and sticks in the process. 
Um, and let's just take something like forced technology transfer. And this is where really you talk about digging into the details of the tactics, it does matter. Frankly, I think forced technology transfer, which is prohibited under their WTO working party report, um, is always gonna be a temptation if you require joint ventures. So if I were running US policy, I would have put an emphasis on ending the joint venture uh, uh, policies uh, with this. Um, and then similarly, I mentioned uh, intellectual property rights. You could do things in terms of tariffs and open the market. Um, on the state-owned enterprises, um, you know, I, I think that uh, one could actually work more effectively in the WTO and others to have a better approach about how you're going to discipline these companies. Although I have to say it's going to be a lot harder now after the pandemic because state aid, as they say in Europe, is sort of the common practice for, for lots of people. But you could certainly take steps, which we did in the Singapore Free Trade Agreement and frankly in the TPP, to have transparency and sort of more sort of competition. So there is a lot of devil in the details of doing this. The area that I think is going to be the hardest deals with the technology. And I think it's a reality that you will see decoupling in some of the telecommunications areas where you um, are, are uh, where you have cybersecurity worries. Okay. But let me give you an example of where I worry that the pendulum could go too far. If technology includes every big data source, then in a field like life sciences, where you've had a generation or two of Chinese and Americans working across the Pacific, developing venture capital funds, coming up with sort of new health measures. If, if all the health data gets closed off from that community, we're gonna lose innovation in healthcare that will be important. And we have a classic example right now in terms of trying to deal with the pandemic. So I guess I, I, I wouldn't start so much by analyzing what's the Trump agenda and what I'd keep or not. I'd focus on my agenda and see what I would like to try to use of a, of a positive, a negative, or sort of a in-between approach on those topics. And in some ways, this is, it's common sense. I mean, this is a complex, big complex state. And one other point, I guess, is that um, I would always try to see if I could build pressure from outside parties. So, you know, can we get allies and partners on this? Because China is subject to some of that. It does pay attention to that. But there's another community which is within China. And I, I, as I said, frankly, I think Xi has reduced the space for a lot of criticism. Those of us that know Chinese feel that a lot of them feel they can't object in the past. But I think, you know, we underestimate the Chinese public and their own cynicism sometimes about the regime, which you certainly saw in the early parts of the pandemic when Chinese people had a way of pushing back on it. And let me give you another specific example of that. Um, we, we decided that we want more reciprocity in terms of news media. So we send away a lot of uh, Chinese reporters, whether they're reporters here or investigators, you know, who knows. If they're spies, catch them, track them, throw them out. But I don't think we were well served by sending Chinese journalists home because then they kick out a bunch of Western and American journalists. And I've had this discussion with a number of friends. I think the quality of Western reporting from China is, has weakened because of that. And, and so we learn less. So how does that serve our interests?
But doesn't that get to the question which you raised in your, in your, uh, your final point, which is our fundamental values? So what should we do about the treatment of US journalists in China when they're, they're invited to have tea by the local uh, public security bureau? What do we do about Chinese behavior in Xinjiang? What do we do about the increasing violations of the one country, two systems uh, system in in um, in Hong Kong? What what do we do about those? Just use the bully pulpit? Well, I think it varies. I think, and we should always express our opinion. Again, let me give you a practical example in the area of religious freedom. I was with President Bush 41 when he visited China in early 89. So the Japanese emperor had just died. He went to the funeral and he had the quick visit to, to Beijing. And um, he visited, we went on Sunday to the Christian church that he had attended when he had been uh, the, uh, the minister or emissary there. Um, he didn't necessarily make a big deal about it, he didn't give a speech about it, but he was sending a signal about the importance of uh, religious freedom. Fast forward 10 or 15 years later, when I had some of my strategic dialogues with my Chinese counterparts, I said to them, look, I understand the Chinese history and fear about religious movements from the Taiping Rebellion to others over time, and then the sense of losing control. But you have to expect that as your society becomes wealthier, people will turn to different spiritual preferences and the economic substance won't be enough. And I said, and why get yourself positioned against this? You know, why not trade some space for this, okay? Now, the Communist Party may not decide to do that, but my point is we can remain true to ourselves and remain true to our posture by taking that position. On, on Hong Kong, for example, um, I think that the violations of the 1997 settlement are things that the United States should point out, that we should, sh we should emphasize how it will weaken Hong Kong. And if it gets to a point, we have to decide again in our common interest, maybe we withdraw some of the special benefits that Hong Kong sort of had as a territory if it reaches that point. So, I, and similarly, uh, in terms of, uh, in Zhejiang province, we should, explain both publicly and privately why we think this is going to be a mistake for them and ultimately for the Chinese people. But there's a pattern in U.S. policy that if you, you express your position and you can't force the other country to change, that either we're, we're supposed to cut off our arm. I don't, I've never quite grasped the logic of that. I mean, you know, uh, you've got a sophisticated community on this call. There's things that in Mexico we don't like. There's things in Germany we don't like. There's things in Britain. I realize oh, there's things in Vietnam, which is one of the beneficiaries of the sort of the China's sort of trade policy. So I, I don't think it has to be all or nothing. And I would just say that if, if the Trump policy is, is sort of your model, well, I don't think they've said one darn thing about values in China. Well, they, they object to to what's going on in Xinjiang. They've objected to Hong Kong. Pompeo has made a few statements. They are, they are objecting. Yes, look, the question the really is, is what, do we, what do we sanction? Do we use the Magnitsky Act? You know, how, do we, how do we approach that? Do we go beyond just using the bully pulpit? Well, you have to give me the examples of where Trump has said it. 
because I don't think you'll find many, if at all. <laughs> and, then, and then secondly, um, it's this point where Reagan had this very effective ability to push, push the Soviet Union at the same time that he was speaking, whether his conversations with Gorbachev or with the Russian people, about the aspirations that they should have. And I think there's a way to do that. And I don't think we've been doing that. So I don't, and again, take, um, you know, I take Taiwan policy, which is a very sensitive one. And we, have, we better be very careful about it. You mentioned the one country, two systems. I think with the, 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 the sort of the uh, faltering of the one country, two systems in Hong Kong, that's gonna create additional tensions in, uh, with Taiwan and China's policy towards Taiwan. And um, if, if I think if our aim is to try to preserve Taiwanese society as a democracy and be able to interact in the international system, there's a lot of things we can do. I'm the guy who brought China and Taiwan and Hong Kong into APEC in 91, 92, and I finished Taiwan's accession into the WTO. Those are real things, okay? And frankly, uh, I pushed earlier for uh, China to accept the Taiwan as a WHO observer. And some of that was now lost in the process. That was achieved for a while. So, and, and then we have to ask ourselves, and this is just means and ends in practical policy. If some people say, well, we should recognize Taiwan as independence, you have to make a judgment about whether China will, how China will respond to that. Um, I told the Congress years ago, I think they have to be ready for military conflict. And then you better go look with the Naval War College and ask kind of exactly our posture in dealing with such a conflict. Because yep. at least from the analyses that I've seen in most of the war games, we don't turn out so well. So that's the realities of power. Did, did you hear this speech given by the Deputy National Security Advisor on May 4th, uh, Matt Pottinger, who gave a speech in Chinese about the May 4th movement and what it means for, for China today. Did you hear that and what did you think? I, I read the reports of it. Is that a good way to approach kind of talking to China? I think any speech like that will have to be seen in the context of your approach to China. And I think given Mr. Pottinger's approach, the administration's approach, uh, that speech will be uh, uh, kind of can be useful for his domestic politics. I don't think it's gonna be effective foreign policy. This is from, this question is from Tony Miller, who's up very early in the morning in Tokyo to listen to you. Uh, he's head of PAG in Tokyo and a uh, former partner of mine at Carlisle. Given the increasing tension between the US and China, what role would you advise and what role would you expect for Japan to take over the next few years? How does Japan play the delicate balance between being a loyal ally of the United States and yet retaining China as their largest trading partner? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and, and let, let me put it in the context. If, if the 70 year old system that we've come to depend on breaks down, you, and this goes to your point about great power world, you could see a world that looks more like 1900, where you've got the United States, China, India, Russia, because of its geographic scope uh, and some of its resources, Europe as a power on economic topics, 
we'll see whether on political security ones. And what about Japan? And my guess is Japan would have to find some complex relationship where it doesn't totally alienate China, but it maintains the United States uh, security relationship. Um, and so I think you're already seeing that, at least what I see in the, the polls about the attitudes of the Japanese people towards China. They don't want to cut off the relationship. It's very important to them economically, but they're trying to build up sort of additional precautions. Um, obviously, a lot depends on how the United States treats Japan. Um, that has not been uh, so effective <laughs> over the past few years, in, in, in my view. Um, this is where I think Japan's membership in the TPP, if the U.S. had been part of it, would have been a real plus. On the security side, um, there were changes underway for at least 10 or 15 years of some of the intelligence and security relationships. I think you will start to see more of that. But, and of course, it also relates to Japan's position with, uh, with, with South Korea. So um, it's a good example where the bottom line is the United States should want uh, uh, Japan to remain a core partner in our international economic and security community. But we'll have to be somewhat deft with how we deal with the Japanese and accomplishing that. And also, uh, this goes a little bit to the your, your point on some of the values issues. You know, and I mentioned this in my remarks, um, you know, I think China overplayed its hand. Now, in my diplomatic experience, sometimes if the other guy's digging a deep hole, the best thing to let him do is let him keep digging. You know, the rest of the world sees some of their, their how they're overplaying it and kind of reacting to it. And the way we wade into it actually sort of creates some sensitivity about siding with us on these issues. They're overly aggressive diplomacy. You know, the, the, they've played their hand there. Yes, I mean, there's in lots of different ways. I mean, you know, yesterday they add another tariff for barley for Australia. You know, they've threatened various countries with various actions or pulling various things. So, you know, acting like a bully, I think, will redound to harm them over time. Yeah. Yeah. Your opponent is, if, if they're digging a hole, just let them keep digging. Um, Paul Hanley uh, at Carnegie Tsinghua, formerly at the NSC, uh, I agree with you that we have, what we have seen from the Trump administration is more of an attitude, expression of frustration towards China. But I imagine within the White House, they must think they have a strategy. What do you think? they believe their strategy is? What are their ultimate objectives? Is it containment? Is it regime chain? Is it to convince Americans in the world that China is the new evil empire? Well, um, I, uh, I know and respect Paul a great deal. I may differ. I'm not sure they think they do have a strategy. Uh, as Paul said, and his colleague Evan Feigenbaum, I think was the first one to mention this, they have an attitude. But let's, let's go through the list. Uh, I think containment is a misapplied concept for the reasons we know. Others are not going to be willing to uh, cut off ties with China in the, or isolate it in the ways that they did with the Soviet Union. The economic, the engagement on uh, health issues, environmental issues is too deep. Um, are you going to break the Chinese regime? As I suggest in the piece I wrote, I, I don't think the final chapter has been written on Chinese politics. I think this is where the Communist Party has its anxieties. Um, but I don't think 
you can reasonably base a policy over the near and intermediate term on the idea that you're going to compel regime change. You want to keep working towards the system in the way we believe, but I don't think it would be reasonable to expect we're going to have regime change in the reasonable future. Um, then uh, what is decoupling? Well, there it goes to the question of we can certainly impose costs on China, but we also impose costs on our own self. And when I've listened to some of the administration debates, it's like, well, they can suffer more than we can. That never struck me as a very reasonable policy is to, that I'm going to bring more costs onto my own economy or system, even if it costs somebody else. How does that get me where I want to try to go? So then there's this last category, whether it's costs or sort of decoupling. And I believe there will be decoupling in, in a number of different areas. We then have to ask ourselves how that serves our interests and kind of whether it'll build more support for us with allies and whether it's going to achieve our objectives. So go back to whatever list of objectives you want to have for your policy. I gave a list of seven or eight from economics to traditional security. If you're going to deal with the North Koreas of the world, how effectively do you think you're going to do that if you don't have some working relationship with China? Or if you want to deal with the Irans of the world or pandemics of the world? So I don't, have an I don't get answers to that, but then again, I'm not speaking to people in the administration. If you were still in government, what would you do about Huawei? Do you think this ever-tightening sanctioning of Huawei, now that we not only have put them on the entity list, we license some exports, but the, it's, it's starting to tighten. Now we're going to control exports from third countries which contain U.S. technology. They're going to require, require a Department of Commerce um, license. So the question then is, have, have we lost this? What, what, what do we do about Huawei? Have we lost the race for 5G? I have various friends in the technology community that know a lot more than I do. But I would just say, as a student of economic history, I've noticed that um, no one seems to lose forever. In other words, the nature of technology and innovation would be if we're behind on some things, there are certainly possibilities that we could uh, catch up and advance again. Um, and I tend to have confidence in the US system of innovation, um, which is, I think, fundamentally different than China's. Um, there's, I have a chapter in the book I have coming out uh, about a man named Van Ever Bush, who was uh, head of the Carnegie Science Institution and created a process in World War II and then afterwards that tried to create what at Stanford is called the triple helix, the combination of universities, private business, and government funding. And that became one of the battlegrounds in the course of the Cold War. Um, I tend to believe that the, the US system for information and versus the state controls ultimately will be uh, more successful. Um, I think we're best if we can do it with other types of partners. The question then uh, really depends on uh, what type of service, as I suggested, I think inevitably you're going to see fragmentation in the worlds of internet. You already were seeing it. I think you're going to see it in a number of the telecommunication spaces. That may just be a price that the world has to pay for their own uh, security. Um, 
I, I have not been privy to the intelligence on Huawei. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to duck you on this one. I'm just saying that I, I suspect that there are some serious problems, but I also worked enough with intelligence agencies and security community that I always used to like to ask a lot of questions because everybody would come in the meeting and they'd keep repeating the same mantra. And then I'd try to dig and dig and dig. So I'd kind of like to really know where the risks and dangers are on this. I've talked with some of the British GCHQ authorities about whether they might be involved with some of the hardware, but not the software in the process because the software has to be continually updated. Those are the types of questions that I would uh, probe in the system. And then the most recent Huawei issues deal with the chip industry. And I would like to know more about what damage I'm doing to America's chip industry if I totally cut them off from Huawei. So do I wanna to try to destroy Huawei by cutting off semiconductor or different chips with the prospect that they will develop alternatives within a couple of years? Or is it better to continue some supply relationships while developing our own capacity for the 5G? Those are the types of questions that are not subject to sort of the easy black or white. You actually have to get into the details of it. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I you know, my knowledge of it, if I had a visit to Huawei last year and talked to them, clearly they're the first round of uh, restrictions reduced American exports from of semiconductors from about 18 billion to 12 billion uh, a year. So a significant drop and Huawei claims that's 30 to 40,000 US jobs if you use a very standard metric. Um, you know, the the intelligence issue kind of brings to mind this story that was in yesterday's uh, paper about the, the current Secretary of State claiming he has overwhelming evidence that the virus originated in uh, the virology lab in, in, uh, in Wuhan. And apparently there was, it was, a, it was unclassified and it got leaked, but the mistakes in that intelligence were simply very basic, very ba misinterpreting all sorts of data, which was very easy to understand that it didn't make any sense, like not understanding people leave work at Lunar New Year and stuff. I mean, it was, it was very, very basic. Um, but you're very right to warn, we need to look at that intelligence carefully. Uh, Dan Rosen kind of asked a follow-up. Uh, so he says, you're, you're okay with specific regulatory moves of recent years? Not tariffs, of course, which you've spoken against, but investment screening, tighter export controls, strict inspections of academic collaborations, et cetera? Um, I'm cautious in most of those areas. Uh, I've, I've tended to believe that an open investment system uh, has been to the U.S. benefit. Um, and therefore, in my years of government, whether at Treasury, USGR, or others, I always welcome inward investment. Um, I realize that there could be some security justifications uh, for precluding them, but I would be rather stringent and I'd, uh, in defining them, and I would look closely at whether um, you could do sort of workarounds uh, with the nature of the, uh, of the investment system. Um, I think we're going to see increased investment screening around the world uh, as part of a sort of in some ways, countries are gonna emphasize their national security to the detriment of systemic security for everybody. And it'll cost in productivity and we'll have a slower recovery and we need to sort of recognize that. Um, on the export control regime, um, 
the, the, at least some of the proposed regulations that I've seen from the Department of Commerce become uh, overreach. Uh, and they, they start to get into uh, sort of, uh, any involvement of people or ideas. And, and again, I think there'll be a big price to be paid on that. One has to get into the specifics of each one. Um, take Chinese students. Um, obviously, there's a trade-off. There's always the danger of intelligence operations. But over the long run, is it important for more Chinese to come and see the United States and live in the United States? I think so. So um, I have nothing against the disclosure arrangements that people want to have for funding and other types of, so people are upfront about sort of what arrangements that they have. Um, the idea of cutting off all Chinese students in science and technology doesn't strike me as a good approach. Um, yes, I understand some of those Chinese may go back to China and they'll serve the Chinese national interest. Um, but at the same time, some of them will become friends of the United States. They'll stay as entrepreneurs in the United States. And frankly, we're at a dangerous point now here where Asians in general and Asian Americans are now being looked at with suspicion. I mean, when I read these stories about Asian Americans on the street being sort of treated badly because of the pandemic, I shiver. We've had this happen before in the United States. So what I'm, for Dan, I'd have to go through each one. Um, I tend to be, put it this way, I start out, whenever you face one of these, it's important to have a sense of where your baseline assumptions are. My baseline assumption is that the openness of US society, to goods, to ideas, to capital, to people, has been a great strength of the United States. And it's not only been appealing uh, in terms of our image in the world, but it frankly, it forces us, when we get things wrong, to change it, to become more competitive, to have different ideas, uh, to learn about our mistakes. And I think that's a plus for America over time. So this, in some ways, what we'll see coming out of this pandemic is there'll be one move for adaptation. Should you have different inventories and stockpiles? Should you have more diversity in sourcing? Should you have more flexible supply line? All that will probably be necessary, but it'll have some costs. Or do you move to autarky? And some, basically, many of the people in the administration are favoring an autarky approach. And I think that'll hurt the US in the long run. Yeah. We have this uh, digital economy dialogue with the Chinese that's, read, that's led by uh, Denny Admiral Blair and uh, Mike Chertoff, former uh, Director, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. And what's clear, though, is this, this decoupling is occurring. And it's almost there's a creation of two ecosystems, which ultimately is inefficient, as the World Bank certainly knows that, that this is, it's dangerous, it's inefficient, it will lead to reduced GDP growth for the whole world. It's not just America and China. But the problem that we're confronted with is kind of Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, you know, cloud computing, it's all blocked from China. And now we're starting in this race to the bottom, we're starting to block the Chinese. So how do we, you know, how do we stop that race to the bottom? How do we kind of start finding ways that we can benefit ourselves and benefit the world? Well, we've discussed, I, I think in essence, the approach that I've tried to suggest is can you find areas of mutual interests 
yeah. where cooperation can produce results and produce a record. So part of my comments today and in the article you mentioned was first to recall that there has been actually a rather successful record on this. Because as I said, the new conventional wisdom is that cooperation with China failed. So people can individually decide whether the benefits and proliferation or economy or environment or other things are worth it. I think there's a lot of good accomplishments there. But to say that they're zero is, is misleading it's yourself. Wrong. So then, then, uh, th then you try to, you, you, know, you build a record in terms of uh, where you can find uh, the common ground on topics. And even take, let's take uh, the topic like the, uh, the coronavirus. You see, I don't think the Chinese want to have another pandemic either. I started out with the point that I think this could have shaken the legitimacy of the Communist Party system. I think there was a way, and you could start to see that the scientific communities were starting to try to uh, understand more what was going on and sharing the different information. China clearly uh, didn't get the information, and it partly goes to the nature of the system I've described, where Xi had all the power in a centralized system. The message to the people at the local level was don't report bad stuff, so they didn't and they tried to shut down any set of critics and it ended up hurting them. But so I think the natural approach would have been to try to work with the Chinese, with other parties and say, look, we have to get to the bottom and learn how this happened. We need to understand the causes of it. We need to prevent it in the future. The problem that we've created now, in, including with the speech that you mentioned by the deputy by Matt Pottinger is, it's become a, a form of clubbing China and insult to them and a way of trying, in a sense, that we want them to admit their guilt before we do the investigation, okay? And that's just unrealistic. It's just not gonna happen. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna end up getting pushback. And so if people want something else to criticize China, that's fine. If you'd like to get to the bottom of the source of the pandemic, it's not a very successful approach. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you explicitly say it, but I certainly, reading between the lines of what you're, you've written is you would favor some reinstitution of the TPP as an incentive for China to reform, that U.S. participation in some reform TPP is a, is a good idea. Yes, but I mean, that's not going to happen under a Trump administration, and I don't even know whether a Biden administration could deal with it. As I mentioned, they've got their own challenges on the protection side. I think if I were advising Democrats interested in trade, I try to think how can you build on some of the constituency support that you see in the polls for trade, which probably includes a bigger environmental element. And one of the things we're gonna, that you see coming out of Europe, for example, is the challenge of dealing with carbon border taxes and other uh, issues of that nature. So I think this goes to the point when you asked about 2005, circumstances change. How you promote trade is gonna to have to be different in this area. And the problems are gonna be different. My, my friend Pascal Lamy, uh, former head of the WTO, former European Trade Commissioner, has warned people that in addition to standard protectionism, we're gonna see a rise of what he refers to as precautionism. Now precaution comes from the precautionary principle that the European Union applies. But he's saying more generally now, you're going to see countries use regulations and standards for alleged health reasons or, or other types of protection reasons, and they're going to create new barriers in the system. 
and where where in a sense the tariffs often were a race to the bottom these could be a race towards higher standards but in a way that interrupts the movement of trade depending on the nature of the science so the nature of the challenges to keep an open trading system uh, as part of growth and development have changed and will continue to change yeah you mentioned AIIB in your in your comments. The and a bunch of your former uh, employees went over to help Jin the Ching kind of create this institution. I mean, two questions. One is why did it receive such a bad reception in the United States? The U.S. didn't become a member, and you know we tried to persuade. It appears we tried to persuade others not to be a member. And has it worked out? Well, on the first one, uh, you'd have to ask some of the people in the Obama administration. Um, and I think I saw reports of slightly different perspective from different agencies, not surprising. Um, but if I were to give you a bureaucratic analysis, um, I would offer the following. Um, the people in the US administration probably properly assessed that they would have a hard time getting the Congress to appropriate money for it. And so they then took the view of, well, let's oppose it. I thought that was a mistake from the start. I would have, and I said this publicly at the time, in my 30 odd years dealing with policy issues, I, most of my experience was other countries coming to the United States asking us to spend money on some project very rarely did some other countries say, we want to spend, we want to invest the money. So I wouldn't have objected to the Chinese creation of this bank if it were done with proper standards and procurement and governance and other, other pieces. But then, and this is where the devil of the details of policy making does matter. Uh, I'm not even sure this was ever considered the administration, but the when I was at the World Bank, I created an infrastructure policy and financing hub in Singapore. So I was trying to leverage the idea that a lot of people talked about public-private partnerships for infrastructure, but they were primarily one-off transactions. And I was looking to see what we could learn about efficient financing systems, whether equity or mezzanine, guaranteed, other combinations. So I created a hub in Singapore and I actually got um, the Singapore Ministry of Finance to put in some money and I had some money from IFC to kind of help seed it. Um, I think that hub has since kind of uh, withered, but it was around at the time of the AIB. So if I were at the Treasury Department, I would have said, let's go, for go forward with this. U.S. won't necessarily contribute, but let's create an effective working relationship with the World Bank's infrastructure hub, which would have made sense. Um, and that way you would have avoided the congressional element while while putting the emphasis on the governance principles that you wanted China to apply, which I think by and large they have applied. And that relates to your second question. Not surprisingly, when you create a big new a project like this, it took a while to build up the staff. The AIB doesn't really have the policy development staff that the development banks have. It has played a large role in co-financing projects from the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and others. So why should I object to China raising money to co-finance projects that are part of a sort of US and led and guided system. Doesn't seem too reasonable to me. And then the other point is, you know, it's part of diplomacy is that uh, you generally don't want to pick fights you're going to lose. Yeah. 
We're just about out of time. We've got about just a minute left. But, you know, th this is our annual members meeting. Um, you know, and it's, you know, I briefed our members before this about kind of what we're doing, you know, how dark the relationship is. I actually quoted Martin Luther King in terms of our mission. When it is dark enough, we can see the stars. And my view is it's dark enough we can see the stars and the mission of the committee is, is really quite clear to try and educate America, educate both the public and American elites. So my last question is really in this environment, you know, what can the committee do? You know, we're running, you know, dozens and dozens of programs. We're continuing our track twos with the Chinese. Um, we're even creating some, some additional ones. We're using Zoom as much as humanly possible. But how can we change this, this environment that exists today? Well, I think that the, the members of the committee um, have to uh, first converse with other constituencies, whether it be with the Congress, whether it be with governors, whether it be with mayors, insofar as they represent business interests to uh, explain, as I, at least as I've tried to outline it, the costs of whatever you want to call it, decoupling, containment, or others. And I think there's a way to do that while then pointing towards a constructive path, as I've tried to do today across uh, a agenda of, of items. So I think first you have to try to uh, moderate the debate at home. Um, I think in the course of 2020, uh, the most you can do is soften up the ground. I mean, so, you know, I, I wrote this piece in the, the Wall Street Journal. I write regularly for them. I'm trying to, and when I've spoken on these subjects, different people, some people say, well, that makes sense. You know, and so you're trying to build some approach beyond um, pure conflict or contention about what you want to try to achieve. Then let's. Then we have to look at sort of what happens in 2021. Um, if if President Biden wins or Vice President Biden wins, um, my own sense is that um, many of the people around him will be wary uh, of of China, but they see some of the downsides of the Trump approach. So they may be uh, open to uh, different steps that one could take perhaps a multilateral that would be constructive in achieving U.S. interests, but putting things on a slightly more cooperative track. I've been part of campaigns. You know, right now they're trying to just get elected and their main issue is to dodge the, the China hammer that Trump is throwing at them. So they're not gonna develop these proposals in detail uh, at this point, but people could be thinking about them at that point. Uh, I mentioned in this op-ed piece the importance of Europe, which I think most people totally ignore. I think Europe's going to be a key player in this in terms of the future of U.S. and China. And I've had conversations with members of the European Commission, people in Paris, people in Berlin, about working with the U.S. on these topics. So that's another types of sort of building the network. You mentioned Japan as a sort of player in this process. Um, so I think it's preparing the way uh, for some adjustment of the policy away from hostility. If, if Trump's elected, it's, it's hard to tell because, um, you know, I don't, he doesn't approach us with a particular set of principles. He can turn on a dime. Um, and 
uh, I think his trade agreement is going to be a bust, um, but he will want to claim it's a success of some sort. So uh, there will be a lot of people in his administration that will want to uh, increase the antagonism, but does he want to have a total breakdown with Xi? I don't know, it's hard to tell. So I, I guess, um, I think the starting point would be for some of the people that think that this relationship is important to show a little bit more spine, if I have to be blunt about it. I mean, you know, I write these pieces, I get the hate mail and so on and so forth. A lot of other people have got a bigger stake in the relationship than I do, and yet they all seem rather quiet. So, you know, as people, I think it was Elihu Root or said that, uh, you know, the only thing that the, for a system to go bad is for people to fail to speak up about things. And I think we're at that point in this relationship and more broadly. That is the perfect way to end this. I think that is absolutely the message I want to send out to everybody. I thank you for what has been a, a very wide-ranging discussion. I think to hear rational voice on China is, it's uplifting and it's wonderful. And I thank Carla for allowing me to moderate this. I've got two former USTRs on this platform and I was able to do it. But Bob, thank you so much. This was really terrific. Thank you for speaking 15 years ago and thank you for your service to this country. It's really- Well, I'll come back in the next 15 years. <laughs> uh, we wanna have you back sooner. How about 15 days? <laughs> and thank you all for joining. Thanks, Steve. We both did a great job. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Carla. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.